Who laughed when Donald Trump set out to win the White House? Lots of people. But who got the last laugh and the Republican nomination? And who got it? In part by bashing those who had laughed at him, dismissing them as elites who had rigged the system against the little guy, the academic elite, the media elite, the Wall Street elite, the Washington elite. And by proving wrong all of those who laughed at him, did Donald Trump merely prove that populism works Or did he expose something about his list of elitist targets, that in fact they had missed something important going on in America, and by doing so had left an opening in campaign 2016 that this builder of skyscrapers drove through like a bulldozer? Well, that sounds like the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Let's meet our debaters. Again, the motion, blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. The team arguing for the motion, please welcome first Tim Carney. Tim, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Uh, you are, Tim, a senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner. You are a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And in the column that you write for the Examiner, you noted a recent poll showing that young Washington insiders nevertheless feel not so attached to their political parties anymore. So does this mean, uh, in your opinion, that we're going to be seeing more outsider candidates getting successful in the future? The fact is that you will see uh, more third-party candidates, I think, like Gary Johnson. But so far in this election of all elections, where you'd think they'd do really well, the polls aren't showing it yet. All right. And please tell us who your partner is, Tim. And my partner is Ben Dominich. Ladies and gentlemen, Ben Dominich. Ben, welcome. Another first-time debater with us. Good to be with you. And you are founder and publisher of The Federalist. That is an online magazine focusing on politics and policy and culture. And it actually welcomes different points of view. For example, two points of view on Trump. You had one headline that said, Donald Trump can't make America great again because that would require greatness. (laughs) But you also had one that said, seven reasons this black man supports Donald Trump. So... Sounding kind of across the board, but does the magazine take an official position on his candidacy? Uh, As a personal matter, I signed on to the National Review Against Trump uh, cover, but as a publication, we welcome views from all across the political spectrum. Thank you, Ben Dominic. Now let's meet the team arguing against. There are two on that side as well. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jennifer Rubin. Hi, Jennifer. You are, you, you are author of the Right Turn blog at the Washington Post, and you recently came up with a list of questions that you think debate moderators should be asking Trump. They're serious questions, but what, in your opinion, is the most important question to put to candidate Trump in a debate? To ask Mr. Trump if he still believes that the President of the United States was not born here. That, after all, goes directly to what we need to know about his perspective, his character, but also about his supporters. Can you tell us, please, Jennifer, who is your partner? My partner from the Wall Street Journal, Brett Stevens. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Stevens. (laughs) 
Brett, welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. You've been on our stage before. You are foreign affairs columnist for The Wall Street Journal and deputy editorial page editor, a member of the editorial board. Now, back in August, um, the board published an editorial that said, if the GOP can't get Mr. Trump to change his act by Labor Day, the GOP will have no choice but to write off the nominee as hopeless. So Labor Day is long past. Is it hopeless? Well, hopeless in the sense that uh, he can't win. I think I'd rate his chances at about 20 percent. Hopeless in the sense that he isn't going to change or learn or improve as a human being and as a leader, (laughs) more so than ever. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion. Our motion is blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. We go in three rounds. Let's begin with round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. Speaking first, in support of the motion, blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon, Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ben Dominich. Thank you, John. So why does the Republican Party choose to nominate Donald Trump? A man who, as John Mulaney tells us, begins every day by asking himself, what would a cartoon rich person do? (laughs) The key to understanding the Donald Trump phenomenon is to recognize that he is neither a disease nor a symptom. He is a beta test for a cure. Americans are turning to him because he represents the breakdown of the post-Cold War left-right politics of the nation, a breakdown that has been happening in slow motion for the past two decades, fueled by a dramatic decline of trust in America's elites. The percentage of Americans today with a great deal of trust in the presidency, the courts, the public schools, and the banks are in the teens. Trust for unions, the justice system, big business, Congress, and the media are in single digits. The list is familiar to you all by now. 9-11, Iraq, Katrina, Congressional corruption, financial meltdown, bank bailouts, failed stimulus, a health care mess, stagnant wages, this distrust was earned. Rather than responding to the populist tendencies that we all saw rising up from this electorate with real changes, the elites overpromised and underdelivered. They thought they could get by by holding a musket over their head in election years and prioritizing what lobbyists want in all other years. Elite indifference to populist opinion and the economic pain many Americans continue to experience created a vacuum that Donald Trump was happy to fill. A number of smart commentators on the right and the left have delved into the question of America's lost greatness, and they've discovered what would lead voters to find Donald Trump's message so appealing. It's a dramatic failure of the institutions run by America's elites and nostalgia for a time when such mediating institutions could be trusted. Imagine you are one of the millions of middle-aged, unemployed white Americans with a high school degree. There are today 7 million men in prime working age who have dropped out of the labor force. That's 15%. That's higher than than since the end of the Great Depression. Moved from unemployment to disability, you'll receive sufficient benefits to subsist, around $1,200 a month, which is enough to pay for the alcohol and the drugs that help you self-medicate. You are statistically unlikely to ever re-enter the workforce, and alone among all demographics, the likelihood of suicide is rising for you. Your tomorrows look dark, but the past, even the grimy parts of it, look like gold. And when a golden-haired man comes on TV 
a man who represents a vision of what you might hope your life could be like, a man who is a traitor to his class, who defies the elites, and he tells you it's not your fault. He tells you it's the fault of immigrants and bad trade deals and wasteful, pointless wars based on lies. He tells you with confidence that he alone can make everything great again. And you listen. In the absence of the failures of the elites, could Donald Trump succeed? The answer is no. Our elite leadership class sowed the wind, and Donald Trump is the whirlwind they've reaped. Vote for the motion. Thank you, Ben Dominic. And that motion is blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon here to make his opening statement against the motion. Brett Stevens, he is foreign affairs columnist and deputy editorial page editor at the Wall Street Journal. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett Stevens. I want to begin my opening remarks by asking you in the audience a few questions. First question. How many of you in this audience have been to Europe in the last five years? Raise your hands. Um, Everyone raised their hands. Everyone. (laughs) Everyone raised his or her hand. Yes. (laughs) All right. How many people in this audience live in Manhattan or a New York City-like suburb like Westchester? Raise your hands. Uh, Most hands go up. One more question. I'm very curious. Generally speaking, Sancerre is white or red wine? White. White seems to be the consensus. You are correct. Thank you very much. I hate to break it to you, but you are the elite. You live in the most expensive city in America. You drink wine that never costs less than $20 a bottle. You're the elite. And so this proposition is very simple. Do you blame yourselves for the rise of Donald Trump? Now, my friends on the opposite side would like to imagine the elite as someone else, all right? It's the billionaire class that you sometimes hear about. It's those corrupt politicians, Democrats or Republicans in Washington. It's some idea of an elite, and yet it's you. Now, what you just heard from Ben was an astonishingly condescending portrait of who the Trump voter is. There are some, probably some Trump supporters in this audience. Let me ask those Trump supporters. Don't raise your hands because <laughs> I don't want to put you in jeopardy, okay? Did you recognize yourself in that caricature? Are you, are you going to walk out of here and go to the, to the bathroom and shoot up just after this? I don't, I don't think so. We live in a democracy, and people think democracy is about freedom. It's not. It's about accountability. It's about we, the people, being responsible for the choices we make in our lives and at the voting booth. Who do you blame for the Trump phenomenon. One could blame the Trump voter. One could blame the people who are responding to this message of intolerance, bigotry, and fake victimization. If you want to find another culprit, I would offer you the parade of demagogues who have emerged in the ether on certain cable news shows, 
on certain radio shows. Some of them have first names that are like Sean, for example. (laughs) And this is a pattern that in history we know very well. It is the pattern of the demagogue demagoguing to a public that wants easy answers and people to blame. They are accountable for those choices. Do not feel guilty for standing apart from them and do not condescend to them by saying that they have no moral agency in the disastrous political choice they may be about to make. Thank you. Thank you, Brett Stevens. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. And a reminder of what's going on, we are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. You have heard the first two debaters, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon, Tim Carney. He is a senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, Tim Carney. Thank you. And uh, not to talk outside of school, but uh, Jen Rubin did say on stage before this all began that any one of us would do better than, uh, than Donald Trump on the debate stage. And I think that Brett Stevens just recently showed that his debating and sophistry skills far exceed uh, Donald Trump's. Um, the, the argument, if we're going to take it seriously, is that this audience, which means my mom, a retired stay-at-home mom, and the, uh, the almost out-of-work actor I met in the reception back there, that they are the elites, but that Sean Hannity is not. I think we need to get more specific. I think we need to define who the elites are that we're talking about. And I'm happy to name very specific names. They are the men and women, mostly the men, who were in charge over the past decades, who led our country to the point it is now. They are George W. Bush. They are Mitt Romney. These are the people who were elected, nominated officials, put in charge of the public good. They're Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and their predecessors. And it's telling to talk about their predecessors. Tom DeLay, who invited uh, lobbyist Jack Abramoff into not just the Republican Party, but into make uh, Washington, D.C. be a favor factory for the well-connected. Eric Cantor, supposedly representing Virginia's 7th District as a House Majority Leader, really representing Wall Street. Eric, are you here tonight? Um, Because he retired to a a job here. These men enriched themselves while supposedly in the public trust. Currently, five of the six richest counties in America are within commuting distance of the U.S. Capitol. That is not the sign of a healthy republic. And that's why you got a Tea Party. That's why 2009, 2010, this wasn't a pro-Republican uprising simply or, you know, a fix-the-debt uprising simply. It was a populist uprising. It was anger at bailouts. It was anger at a stimulus that was just handouts to the Chamber of Commerce. It was anger at an Obamacare that was just handouts to the drug companies and the hospitals. And Republican leaders, these elites, the men and women in power, gave lip service. Democratic leaders did too. And then what did they do? They squelched that populist uprising. In public, they would say, yes, we, we need to get rid of crony capitalism, and then they would go behind closed doors with the crony capitalist donors and say, well, yes, that bottom 47%, well, they just won't take responsibility for their lives. That was Mitt Romney's description. If you were in the bottom 47%, it is literally your fault, and you don't belong in the Republican Party. You may not join our country club. That was the message from the Republican elites. But I want to conclude with a very specific way 
immediate way in which the elites bear the blame. On that stage last year was Jeb Bush, backed by $100 million, and he failed to rise to the occasion. He was the one who could have beaten Donald Trump. Whom do we blame for Donald Trump being the nominee? The people who could have beaten them. Chris Christie, he didn't rise to the occasion. He thought more important than attacking Donald Trump was attacking Marco Rubio. And then when Christie lost, he scampered over to become the valet for Donald Trump. (laughs) And then, of course, there was Hillary. Any normal, decent candidate would be mopping the floor with this thrice-married, philandering, con-man, liberal candidate trying to run as a Republican. She can't do it. Why not? Because she chooses opacity at all occasions that the deplorable public doesn't deserve to know her business. These are the elites. These were the people who set the stage for Trump. These were the people who could have beaten Trump, who could have made him run away. They all failed. It's clear that we need to blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. Thank you, Tim Carney. And here making her opening statement against the motion, Jennifer Rubin, who covers domestic and foreign policy issues in the Right Turn blog for the Washington Post. Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer Rubin. Like Donald Trump himself, our distinguished opponents suffer from a lack of factual support. They paint a picture of a dystopia, of heroin addicts, of poverty. But let's not play in Donald Trump's made-up America. 2015, we had record income growth in America, 5.2%. In fact, poverty is on the decline. And this wasteland of manufacturing, that doesn't exist either. In fact, we've picked up about 900,000 manufacturing jobs in recent years. It's bizarre, frankly, that we should concoct an economic argument that not only does not exist, but that is contrary to just about every conservative economic principle. Conservatives, you see, do not believe that immigration causes unemployment. That's a zero-sum thinking that we usually attribute to our friends on the left. Conservatives do not believe that millions of jobs were lost because of free trade. That's nonsense. We know that there has been a shuffling of the workforce. We know that a more automized, more uh, sophisticated workplace requires different skills. But we have not lost millions and millions of jobs to Mexico. This is the sort of economic fallacy that Donald Trump peddles. It also seems frightfully unfair to blame the losers of 2016 Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, they may have not been the most competent politicians, but they offered an optimistic message of growth, of a confident America in the world. And to blame them for Donald Trump seems awfully trollless. When I think of the causes of Donald Trump... In addition to the voters themselves, I think, how is it that so many people got these wrong ideas about the economy? 
Where could they have gotten the notion that America doesn't win anymore? Where could they have gotten the notion that immigrants are to blame? Where could they have gotten the notion that trade steals our jobs? Ah, it's the Shans, the Rushes, and many others who have told you a story not unlike the ones our opponents did, which has no bearing in reality. Now, if Donald Trump were really the result of an economic downboom or economic collapse, you'd think that they'd be poor, right? You know what the average salary, the average income of a Trump voter is? $72,000. These are not people down on their luck. These are people looking to blame others. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer Rubin. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you and our live audience. Our motion is blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. We have heard the team arguing for the motion, Ben Dominich and Tim Carney. They identify the elites specifically in their argument as the men and women who have been in charge over the last 10 to 20 years in the major institutions in the United States, political and otherwise. They make the argument that the distrust that the elites have uh, experienced is earned due to the failure of institutions run by those elites. The team arguing against the motion, Brett Stevenson and Jennifer Rubin, well, they did a bold thing uh, by pointing out that the Intelligence Squared audience itself is comprised largely of elites, uh, causing consternation among many who were not sure whether to take that as a compliment or an insult. But they argue more broadly that the notion that uh, the elites need to be blamed for a decision that people are making in full responsibility is condescending to the Trump voters themselves. They say that the decline in America that Trump blames on elites is a fiction. I want to go to the team that's arguing against the motion, Jennifer Rubin and Ben Dominich, and see if I can ask you to resolve something that is confusing me a little bit about your argument. On the one hand, you are saying that Trump supporters have been fed a line through, for example, you named the Shawns and the Rushes telling a pretty negative story. At the same time, you're saying it's condescending to voters to say that they're, they don't know what they're doing, that they're responsible for their votes. And I'm not sure if those two things go together. Jennifer Rubin. It's not internally inconsistent at all. Voters are ultimately responsible for what they do with this information. They're ultimately responsible for educating themselves. They cannot hide behind the Shawns and the Rushes. That, however, does not minimize the damage that the Shawns and the Rushes and the blogs and the rest have done. They have poisoned the body politic. They have made, as we have seen in history so many times, the outsider, the other, the source of these people's hardship. So, okay. yes, I do hold the, ro- the voters responsible, All right. but they've I, had some help along the way. I want to let Ben Dominich respond. So I, I, I'm, I have to welcome Jennifer for agreeing with us. I mean, 
if you don't think that Sean Hannity, who was flying Newt Gingrich around in his personal jet to try to get him to be Donald Trump's vice president, is an elitist, I don't know what you're thinking. I mean, he doesn't he, think he's elitist. He is the definition elitist. of a media elite. I mean, just definitively, you're talking about multimillionaire media elites with gigantic megaphones who've been saying things for a long time. Whether you agree with the level of responsibility they have or not, when you say that they were responsible for this, you're saying an elite person was responsible. No, you're not listening. Um, what I said... <laughs> was that the voters are ultimately responsible. And Sean Hannity doesn't think he's an elitist. He's the champion of the anti-elitists. And by the way, he's a college dropout. Okay, Part Tim, of the problem is that an elitist is everyone. Tim Carney. Anyone. Why don't we take Jennifer, these people for Jennifer, let me let granted. Tim come in. Yeah, so I, I would just add that uh, Jennifer's uh, phrase, shuffling of the workforce, um, that, that, would, that would be quite a phrase to bring to the places I went out on the campaign Perhaps trail. Perhaps creative destruction. We- Jennifer, can, West Jennifer, Allen. Gen- hang, hang on, hang on. I just want to set a little bit of a ground rule. I'm okay with the occasional spontaneous break-in, but I, I need you to let him get his, his argument out, and then we can return to your side. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Come out to uh, West Alice, uh, Wisconsin, outside of Milwaukee. C.J. LaRock suffering. Um, you know, he's had a quadruple bypass duty. He's uh, surgery. He's unable to find a job. Gary LeMay, who was out there, two tours in the Persian Gulf disabled, can't find a job, was promised by uh, his congressman, Paul Ryan, that he was going to get help, didn't get it. You tell them that they're simply shuffling of the workforce. Yes, the markets have winners and losers when they do it. The Republican leadership explicitly promised that they were going to fight for these people, and they repeatedly delivered not just free trade, but subsidized trade, not just open borders, but bringing in guest workers, importing workers who, have, who are totally unfree to leave their jobs because that's an immediate deportation. This was rigging of the game. This okay. was not free enterprise. Brett, Brett Stevens. Are there black people in the working class? Are there Hispanics? Are they suffering from the shuffling of the workforce or creative destruction? Probably. Why aren't they responding to Trump's message? They're making a very Marxist argument, which is amusing coming from someone from the American Enterprise Institute, (laughs) which is that this is all about class. All of these people who are making in the, I don't know, third, fourth quintile of uh, uh, of, of income, they're affected by the same forces. And yet they see Trump for who he is. And they're refusing to respond to his message. Who is responding to the message and why? It's because of an appeal to demagogic, race-baiting, and immigrant bashing. All right, let's let Ben Dominic respond. So I want to make two points about this. The first is uh, one of the most telltale signs of whether you were going to be a Trump voter or not was actually not your own economic success. It was your proximity to economic anxiety. It's not the person suffering from the opioid crisis. It's the person who knows that person. It's their father. It's their mom. It's the person who thinks that we need dramatic change in this country. And that, to me, is a telltale sign of why this, this rejection uh, is, is one of the elites. They feel that they have to do something dramatically different in order to get something different from our government. If that isn't a rejection of the political elite, I don't know what is. Let me put in a question again to the side arguing against the motion. All right, so you're, you're making the claim that certain people, uh, Sean Hannity, Raj Limbaugh, are such a small cadre that they don't represent a broad elite, okay? And your opponents disagree with that. But I want to move on to another part of their argument, which is there's a larger systemic cronyism involved in Washington. They describe Washington as a, as a, as a favor factory. Part of their point is that the resentment that has arisen from that 
has led to a breakdown in trust, which has enabled Trump. No, this is not a new phenomenon. People have been mad about cronyism for a long time, and various politicians of all kinds of stripes, Jimmy Carter would be an example of one, Ronald Reagan might be an example of a, of a Republican, have tried to do something about it. It's in part part of our system. That's, what, that, that's not what's new here. Tim Carney. So the cronyism, A, is reaching new heights. I mean, again, you, you look at this. You look at the, the bailouts of Wall Street. You look at Obamacare, where you had, again, these Republican leaders, the people who were put in power, Bob Dole and Bill Friss and Billy Tozan, all enriching themselves off of this corrupt law. The, the populist voters saw that they were consistently being lied to by everybody inside the beltway. So they turned to the guy who at least admits he's a crony capitalist and says he alone can fix it because he knows how the game is played. So it was the guys who rigged the game who set the stage for Donald Trump. Jennifer Rubin. Cronyism is a problem, but Donald Trump rarely talks about it, except to boast of his own efforts at cronyism. What does he talk about 90% of the time? Immigrants, trade. And our opponents still haven't answered the question. Why is it that African-Americans aren't upset about cronyism. Don't they count? Catholics are just as disgusted with Washington, and they're not responsible for Donald Trump. Hispanics are just as, respons- are just as upset about cronyism as Donald Trump, and they're running in the other direction in droves. If you, they're if- trying every which way they can to hold Donald Trump responsible for what he is, a racist, a bigot, a misogynist. The the problem with Jennifer's argument is that she's basically agreeing with Hillary Clinton about the basket of deplorables and all that stuff, which, from my perspective, is really unfair to Trump's voters. Because, uh, you know, frankly, I mean, if, if if you're saying that the reason that he's had success is racism and misogyny, I think you're ignoring the fact that for years, polls have told Republicans in Washington that a significant portion of the country, 35% according to one uh, survey, uh, believed that it was important to enforce our immigration laws and to deport, deport people who were here illegally. But the elite consensus in Washington, a bipartisan consensus, was that you're not allowed to want that thing. It's not racist to want to actually enforce our immigration laws. That's something that's a, an opinion held by a lot of people who are not racist or misogynist and voted for Donald Trump not because they they thought that, uh, that he was going to say racist things and misogynist things and that they enjoyed that, but because they thought that he would stand up to the existing elite consensus in Washington and turn it on its head. Brett Stevens, on the whole, do you feel the elites are doing a pretty good job? I bet everyone in this room is doing a pretty good job at whatever it is they're doing. Doctors, educators, lawyers, whatever. That's part of the elite. So, Is okay. the Washington elite doing a pretty good job? No. The Washington elite is not doing such a pretty good job. But the real question is, then, are they doing such a horrendous job that they've created this utter dystopia where we walk out into a kind of war zone that we hardly recognize? How parochial is this? Go someplace, people, and look at the way the world is and feel blessed with all of our problems here in America to be in the United States today. I want to let... Okay, thank you. Let's start, go to some audience questions now, right down in front. Yeah. Hello, um, my name is Palma. My question is basically, could you please define for me who you think the elite are? You pointed out in your opening okay, statement. Okay, you, you got it. You nailed it. Let's, let's okay. go ahead. 
Jennifer well, that's Rubin. one of the problems with the motion, is that an elite can be anything you say it is. Is this amorphous, nothing word that people toss around to explain who other people are that they don't particularly like? Um, but that's a problem for the motion. Uh, we're against the motion. So we don't think that blaming amorphous, indescribable segments of society that can mean anything you want them to. I'm John Donvan. More questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. I want to remind our audience that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion. Blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. And if you can stand up, they'll find you. Yes, coming down the left side. Thanks. This question's for both sides. Um, do you think, and so far there are, as there are elites in the media, do you think that um, some of these um, media elites, particularly on the left side, have given Trump more of a megaphone and have sort of enjoyed like some sort of self-righteous um, condemnation of him now for a long time, the Huffington Post, for example, et cetera? Do you think, to some degree, they're to blame? Ben Dominic, yeah. you want to take it? Uh, absolutely. The media elites on the left uh, made this po- uh, possible in part by over-criticizing people who didn't deserve it. Uh, things that were printed about Mitt Romney in 2012 uh, in the New York Times uh, by Paul Krugman called him a charlatan, pathologically dishonest, untrustworthy. He said he didn't even pretend to care about poor people, that he wants people to die so that rich people get richer. He's completely amoral, a dangerous fool, ignorant as well as uncaring. Sounds if familiar. You, if you yeah. cry wolf long enough, sometimes the beast actually shows up. Okay. And when that happened, they no longer had a vocabulary that could be used because everyone tunes them out and says, well, we, you were saying about that, about this nice Mormon businessman, you know, t- four years ago. Uh, response from the other side? Look, I mean, to your question, sure, the media participated to some extent in the rise of this guy, but they weren't pushing him and they certainly weren't electing him. The real question is, how was Donald Trump, how, how, how was it that we had this moment where a demagogue was able to use tools of social media at his disposal to speak directly to millions of people? Now, you might then say, blame Twitter or blame a new information economy that disintermediates the media from, you know, between Trump and, and, and his audience, right? Those are sort of broad phenomena that's an interesting discussion. But where does the weight of the blame lie? Is it really the fact that the people who worked hardest to oppose Trump... Look, I'm elite media. Wall Street Journal deputy editor, okay? (laughs) I've done everything in my power to stop this guy. You can blame me for not having a big enough megaphone or for not being an articulate enough columnist, right? I, I, I accept that. But don't blame me, okay, or you, or anyone else in this audience for this phenomenon of hatred, bigotry, nativism, uh, and an angry turn at, at, 
people who should not not be blamed, whether it's the quote okay, elite Brad, I, or whether it's Hispanics or Muslims. I want to let uh, Tim Carney respond to what you just said. I will disagree with uh, Brett's implications that his columnist skills are limited. I think they're excellent, and I don't blame him for anything he's done. He's performed uh, valiantly during this campaign. What I do blame him for or his publication for is what they did before. Um, I've agreed with the Wall Street Journal 80% of the time, but when they were, and when Brett was advocating for the Iraq war, that was creating this system where the Republicans and where the elites were promising we will be greeted as liberators, and you created a war that helped destroy the Republican Party, made Nancy Pelosi the Speaker of the House, and that created this total distrust of the government. So Brett Stevens has performed very well this election, but a lot of the elite media there too by advocating stuff like the disastrous Iraq war, help set the table for somebody like Trump to say, these people are stupid, they don't know what they're doing. And Brett Stevens, I want to point out, is the only person on this stage who has won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 want to, uh, I want to congratulate you for being wise enough not to pull that out yourself. So, <laughs> one more question, then we're going to move on. Yes, yeah, coming down the left side. Thanks. Hey, my name is Jeremy Sundarowitz, and I have a question uh, for the proponents of the motion. Do you think that the Trump voters are accurately assessing the failures of the elites and how those failures, real or not, have affected their lives? Tim Carney. I wouldn't say that these are the people who are the, uh, the sharpest um, policy analysts in the world, um, but that's, that's not to their discredit. Most normal people don't spend their time doing what we spend our time doing and analysis on it. They blame it on immigrants, and I think that that is inaccurate. The fact that they are suffering economically is inarguable. Manufacturing jobs, we've lost millions of them over the last decade. Mostly their solutions, protectionism and closing the borders, I find those both counterproductive and dumb, but their assessment that their own economic and the, as Ben said, the economic well-being of their neighbors has gone down, that aspect I see as accurate. Jennifer Rubin, response? My, is that condescending, kind of elitist, actually, to assume that voters don't know what they're talking about or don't know what they think. They're voting for someone whose views are very well known. Whether you and I agree with them is beside the point. We should stop infantilizing them. These people are responsible. They know what Donald Trump is selling, and they like it. Let's not say, well, they're not the sharpest knife in the drawers. My, isn't that condescending? We're going to now go to what we call the volley round. In the volley round, one member of each team will have 30 seconds to point out the supreme weakness in their opponent's argument as they've heard it presented tonight. And then the other team will have 45 seconds that they can, one or both speakers can respond. Uh, ben Dominich, the supreme weakness in your opponent's argument starting now. I think the weakest uh, aspect of their argument is really basically that uh, nothing needs to change. Things were going okay, and then this black swan event happened, and now we don't need to reevaluate any of the policy critiques, any of the criticisms that he made or that voters who supported him seem to be making. 45 seconds from the opponents. It's an absurd charge. Plenty of things need to change in this country. There are plenty of ways we could make this country a lot better. The question is, how do you go about changing it? Who, who is responsible for the problems that this country faces today? And what is some kind of recipe? Now, the Trump message is the people who are responsible are other people. 
the Chinese and the Mexicans who beat us in trade deals, or Latin American labor that comes in and steals your uh, jobs, or Muslims who want to destroy your communities. I don't think the question is whether there needs to be change. The question is, why is it that they are responding to this message of hatred of others and self-exculpation? All right, now this team, 30 seconds starts now. Jennifer Rubin. No matter how hard we try, they've never answered the question as to why Hispanics who have suffered and African Americans who have suffered and women who have, not, who have suffered are not buying this. What's their response? Are we saying only white people in America have suffered? Response? I'm perfectly happy to grant that uh, Donald Trump is, uh, deals in racism and misogyny and that that is a part of his appeal. And I would say that that in no way exculpates the elites, that the fa- in fact it makes a blame even worse, that they paved the road for this man who could deal with this stuff. What happened was the game was rigged, and there was a very conservative way to say this game is rigged, we're going to unrig it. And that was by railing against crony capitalism. That was by by going and arguing for a fairer, freer market, and the Republicans instead squelched it. They pushed away the 47%, and they engaged even more in the crony capitalism. So when they could point at, when the Republicans could have pointed at the actual perpetrators, they didn't. So a guy could come in, and he could point at the innocent supposed perpetrators, the immigrants, the blacks, the women. He ran away with it. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Where our motion is, blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. And now we move on to round three. Round three will be brief closing statements by each debater in turn. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist and host of The Federalist Radio Hour. Thank you, John. Uh, I had the luxury of spending a lot of time over the past year and a half in a lot of green rooms with a lot of media elites. And one of the things that I would always ask when I was in these green rooms is if they were close to anybody, family or friend, who was voting for Donald Trump, and ask them why. And what was amazing was the sheer degree to which so many of them knew no one, knew no one in their lives who was voting for Donald Trump. It's no uh, question here to me that the elites bear the responsibility for the rise of Trump in part by the thickness of the bubble they have insulated around themselves, where they couldn't understand why this phenomenon was happening. From my perspective, what we've heard tonight from Jen and from Brett, respectfully, is that the overall agenda was not the problem, that war, that immigration policy, that trade policy, that all of these other critiques that that Donald Trump was alleging were not the problem, that it wasn't a problem, that we can't run a VA or or, uh, keep track of a terrorist's wife for 24 hours. None of those things were really the big problem uh, in the country. And instead, I hear them saying, I don't know, I mean, it kind of reminds me of saying, you'll be back, time will tell, you'll remember that I served you well. And, and to me, that's just whistling past the point of understanding what was really going on here, which is the American people looked at the agenda that the elites were offering them. They became disgusted with that failure. And in their desperation, they turned to a man they didn't fully understand because he offered them something different from the failures they knew. Vote for the motion. Thank you. Ben Dominic. And that motion is blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. And here to summarize his position against that motion, Brett Stevens, deputy editorial page editor and author of the Global View column for the Wall Street Journal. Today I received a tweet 
It's the kind of tweet I get all the time in response to my column. I brought it. It's uh, by someone who calls himself Deplorable Nisley. He's one of the deplorables. He writes, How ovenworthy are WSJ editorial staff? Hashtag very. I get this stuff all the time. Now, the question before you is, are you prepared to blame yourselves for this? What I would offer, what I would say to you is do not condescend to the people who are proud of putting that, tw- that tweet on Twitter by saying they know not what they do, that they're not accountable for their political choices. Do not, I beg you, do not accord the status of victim to people like this or people who say slightly less deplorable things. They are not victims. They are looking to victimize somebody else. And finally, I would say, do not indict yourself for the choices and mistakes of other voters. This is a free country. At Trump rallies, people wave American flags. They believe in the American creed. And when you speak to them, they'll say, it's time people take some personal responsibility for their bad choices. Maybe it's time that they should take some personal responsibility for their choices. The blame for the Trump phenomenon ultimately lies with them, not with you. Vote against this motion. Thank you, Brett Stevens. Blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon is the motion. And here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Tim Carney, senior political columnist for the Washington Examiner. A large part of what the opposition has engaged in tonight was uh, an exercise in deflection. That when the camera was pointed at the elites, they said, no, it was this other guy who, you know, he's a millionaire, but we won't count him as an elite. Or when the cameras pointed at the elites, they said, well, the actual dagger was driven home by Trump, or the actual vote is being cast by the voters. And this is an attempt to shift the burden. The question is not whether Trump voters are responsible for Trump winning. The question is not whether Trump is responsible for Trump winning. And the question isn't even whether Sean Hannity is responsible for Trump getting the nomination and being at at 44% in the, in the polls. The question is whether the elites bear blame for this man rising up here, for a party, a, a once great party, they used to call themselves grand, whether they're responsible for that party crumbling, whether the elites are responsible for Trump being within striking distance of winning this election. That's a question. You can't let them deflect from it by pointing out that other people are to blame. Of course the blame goes wide. But ultimately, what do we do in this society? What do we as journalists try to do? We try to hold the powerful people accountable. You have four journalists on this stage, and we all spend our days doing this. So to say that the elites don't deserve the blame, which is implicit in their motion, is to say that the people failed their elites. You're saying that the American people have been let down. Did the elites fail the people, or did the people fail the elites? Thank you, Tim Carney. Blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon is the motion, and here making her closing statement against the motion, Jennifer Rubin, author of the Right Turn blog for the Washington Post. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to my opponents. I must say, when I first got this topic, I thought I would find on the other table Bernie Sanders or maybe Noam Chomsky. 
it's, after all, the province of the unhinged left to assume that there is a vast conspiracy to make the world rotten for the little guy. We live in the greatest time in human history. It's the time where people live longer, fewer are in poverty, the average person has encyclopedic access to the world's knowledge. Imagine my surprise when I saw that there were two conservatives on the other side. Conservatives believe in Adam Smith and Reagan and Milton Friedman. They know about comparative advantage in trade that both sides benefit. They know the lump of labor fallacy that there are only a fixed number of jobs is nonsense. At least they used to know that. They don't believe in victimology. They don't believe in blame casting. They don't believe in any of those things. So it's peculiar in the extreme that we should be facing the arguments of Luddite leftists and nativist knuckle-draggers from our opponents. I assume they took this in good faith, but I would like to cling to my belief that they really don't believe this. I would like them... I would like to believe that conservatives, good conservatives of high principles, still believe that what is known as the liberal international order has brought freedom, prosperity, and happiness to millions. It's lifted billions of people out of poverty. Like democracy, it's not perfect, but it's the best economic system the planet has always known. And it is at heart conservative. Thank you, Jennifer Rubin. Your time is up. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. The results are in. You've heard the arguments for and against. And as always, we've had you vote twice. And as always, victory will go to the team whose numbers have moved up the most in percentage points from the first vote to the second. So let's look at the preliminary vote. In the preliminary vote, blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. 32% agreed, 27% were against, and 41% were undecided. That's very high for us. Those are the first results. Let's look at the second results. The team arguing for the motion blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. Their first vote was 32%. Their second vote was 58%. They pulled up 26 percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's look at the team arguing against the motion. Their first vote was 27%. Their second vote was 33%. They only pulled up six percentage points. It means the team arguing for the motion has carried this debate. Blame the elites for the Trump phenomenon. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer, Robert Rosencrantz is chairman, Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers, Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer, Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer, Chris Kamakawa is director of research, and I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and on Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to our actual live events, visit iq2us.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, 
Robert Epstein, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson, Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Ellen Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and the Paul E. Singer Foundation. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thank you.